Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 109 of Drinks with Tony. My guest this week is Lee Goodkin, and we'll enjoy that interview in a moment. Uh, we're all going to celebrate Halloween during a pandemic. Has anyone done that here? Anyone else? No? Just don't eat uh, don't, don't eat apples with razor blades in them. I remember in the 80s, that was the big thing. Uh, for some odd reason, someone put razor blades in apples and gave them to kids. Who does that? Weird. Anyway, have a great Halloween. And happy Day of the Dead to all my Mexican listeners. Or should I say, Feliz Dia de los Muertos. <laughs> Jesus Cristo. Mi español es no bueno. Y ahora conversación sexy. Hi, my name is Lee Goodkin. And you are listening now to the terrific, the wonderful, the amazing, the never forgotten, never to forget show, Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Lee Goodkin. He's the author of My Last 8,000 Days, An American Male in His 70s. Lee, how are you? Tony, it is so terrific to be here. I looked a little bit into your background. You've been drinking with Tony and without Tony for a long, long time. So, um, so uh, what have you been drinking? Today, today I'm drinking water out of a Tahava tea bottle. Wow, impressive. The water is filtered by Brita. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. Well, um, I've got my diet ginger, ginger ale here. I, you know, I've gotten, you know, what's, um, there's, I love ginger. I love the taste of ginger. It happened after I turned 40 and even more after I'm 50. I, I just, I want more ginger in my life. You mean ginger, this, uh, the, the, the stuff, right? Um, okay. <laughs> Are we talking Gilligan's Island here? <laughs> Do you remember so I like to, I like to put, oh, I love ginger. Um, I yeah. really yeah. yeah, ginger was why you watched it, or at least yeah. why I watched it. Yeah, that was yeah. It. And, and then who was the dark-haired girl? I can't remember her name. All I can think of is ginger. I know, me too. Okay, let's. <laughs> this could end in depravity. Let's uh, switch yeah, topics. Right. Yeah, no. Okay, yeah. Let's let's talk literature. Literature. Oh sure. Or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. No, you were about to say something when I inter interrupted you with uh, the ginger comments. Um. um uh, I'm 77 years old. If you don't catch me when I'm ready to say it, I, it's, it's usually pretty much gone. It'll and, come back later. Yeah. And, and then, um, well, I, I, let me talk, let me ask you, I mean, the, here's something that I loved about your book and when I was reading it is the, you know, because the, the grieving of your mom dying when she's in her 90s and you're 70. Yeah. And it just, it really brings home how we all need our mom and how we're all sons of our mom no matter how old we are. I don't think people understand that. That is so true. You know, um, I mean, in my book, I have lost, um, I mean, the book starts at my 70, around about my 70, 70th year. And my best, my, one of my two best friends died that year. Uh, my girlfriend of 10 years uh, breaks up with me, or maybe I broke up with her. I'm not quite sure we can't ever get that straight. Um, and, um, I start, uh, um, I was a guy who graduated high school, not only in the bottom fifth of my class, but weighing 225 pounds. And I lost all that weight in the military. And suddenly at that 70th year, I started piling it on again by cheating and eating all kinds of stuff I hadn't eaten for 50 years. All those things were happening. And then five days before, um, I turned 70, my mom died. And but I, I mentioned all that to you to say that there was never anything more broken in me, more empty in me than even though I mean, gee whiz, she was 94 years old and I knew she was going to die. She was in an assisted living facility. She knew she was going to die. She wanted to die, all of that stuff. But when it happened, I was empty and lost and and I'm telling you, this is true. It's not like I'm an, a hysterical human being, but now that was 2013. And I, 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 I think of her every day and I often visit her, not at her gravesite, but I often visit um, where she last lived. 
just kind of ride by, you know, and, and say hello to my beloved mom. So yeah, that's the way it is. Um, uh, and I'm sure there are, there are father loyalties as well. But if you're, um, if you've got a mom and if you're either Italian or Jewish, you really stick right on it. So as, and, and it's hard to let go. So yeah, it's, I, I just, you know, just, um, I, what's great about your book as well is, I mean, it, it does, I don't want to make it sound like it's a, it's depressing. You're very funny. I mean, you're, it's, um, you, you have a great humor to the, to the human condition, I guess. It's not funny. Ha ha. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's more like just <laughs> dive into it, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it's just, just, yeah, just, uh, cause I, that, I just, I don't know what about that, that part of, uh, that part of your life that just kind of really hit me. I guess because my mom's getting older too, you know, and so, yeah. and it just, in some people's parents die when they're so young and it affects them the rest of their life. And I guess I forget that whenever a mom dies, no matter how old you are, it's, it's probably just going to be as gutting as when you're 13 years old, as when you're 69. Right. In a different way, because uh, not that I think it's easier if you're 13, but um you know, you got to, you're, you're 60 or 70 years old. This has been the person that has been with you since before you were born. And, and so that's 70 years she's with you uh, off and on. You might not see her all the time, but she's in your mind and in your heart. And you always, you always come back to her. Always, yeah. no matter where you go, you're coming back. And, uh, and so it's a big loss. It's an empty, it's yeah. an incredible emptiness. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it's, you know what makes things so profound for me right now is how we're in the COVID and we're in the pandemic. And it's, it's who, who are we really actively reaching out towards? Because we used to, I mean, before pandemic, we were in these social circles, and these little things bouncing back around each other. I was going to book events all the time. I saw all my people constantly. And then it's just like, you can't keep up with that many people when we're right. kind of in this situation. It's, it's intriguing. Um, it's intriguing who kind of veers in and out of our lives, I guess. It comes back in and, but yeah, we got the constant of a mom. So um, I'm just, I'm just talking. I, I feel like this is more of a therapy session for me than it's an interview at this point. So I should probably switch it back to. Uh... I always wanted to be a therapist. Did you? Well, yeah, um, not always, but, but once I got shrunk, um, I realized I could do it a hell of a lot faster and better than the guy who did it for me. And, um, and I'm curious and I, uh, love, uh, I mean, I'm a storyteller and a story writer. And so you get into that, into that room for 40 or 45 minutes and you hear terrific stories, um, that, um, that you wish you could, <laughs> you could expand and share. I thought it'd be really, um, interesting, um, to, to just, uh, be a therapist for maybe one one day a week, just one day a week, because any more than that, um, you're going to need a therapist. Right. What's what I love about that uh, about um, is that we're always telling ourselves stories. It's so interesting that we are storytellers innately, even if we're not writers. Yeah. We have our version of the story. We have our point of view, and so to be a therapist actually is kind of directing the story of people's lives. Where you're like, you know what? If you move that. Move that thought a little right, over right, here. Right. You're a therapist editor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're trying to you're trying to read edit the um, right. the the you know it's like okay this horrific thing happened to me and I'm like that oh, okay great now what if we bring gratitude into that and it's just like whoa let's sprinkle some gratitude. Well, you know there is this um, we're getting way off but okay there is this <laughs> um, this this um, um, th this kind of field called narrative psychiatry. And, oh, there is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and um, a narrative psychiatrist um, tries to do exactly what you're telling me you would do. Try to get the person to uh, edit or change their story to help them uh, to help them uh, uh, recover from whatever loss they have, and um, or difficulty or challenge that they have. And um, and very often the stories they begin with are not really the stories that occurred. It's the story that's in their mind, which may not be the story in, in actuality. 
and so um, and so narrative in narrative psychology psychiatry. I guess there's also narrative psychology, but whatever the 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 idea and the objective is to amend the story. Because we're going through life with our point of view. Yeah, it's, and we're the only we're the only directors and the only we're the only camera lens that we have. I mean, everyone could be looking at me in black and white or in may, way more vibrant colors. And I don't know. I'm out of the color spectrum on that. Right, right. And, you know, writing a memoir is not so difficult. I mean, um, uh, um, my memoir, um, my last 8,000 days, took me about off and on about 10 years to write. And every time I came back to it, my story, my, let us say my recollection came back. But it came back in different ways. And, um, and sometimes you don't even know what really happened. You only know what you believe happened at that particular point. But you're, but, but you're talking to your keyboard like you're talking to a shrink. And, uh, and it's really nice with a keyboard because, you, because there's the delete button. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you, can, you, know, you can change it all the time, uh, shape it all the time. So... Um, so that's what happened to me with in this book. Um, I wrote this book. I'm not kidding around. I wrote this book. Um, I don't know, maybe 15 times. I wrote it in all kinds of different ways. I wrote it as a collection of essays, and that didn't work. And then um, I wrote it with different narrative arcs until I found one that worked. And then I wrote it with different of different voice because um, a friend of mine told me that I sounded angry. I was angry. I was 70 years old. All these people were dying all over me, and and I was really annoyed. Um, but eventually, um, eventually, with 10 years of uh, my keyboard shrinking me, um, um, it, 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 it kind of seemed that I had a story that seemed, um, as, uh, that seemed um, reasonable to me to share with the world. What I like getting, here's what happens to me. I get angry about something and I start writing about it. And after, you know, and I just, I'm like just disgusted at whatever's happening, right and right and right. And then it starts to become funny to me. Uh, I start yeah. to find a little bit of the humor. <laughs> and then I start to realize, usually I realize I'm the idiot. And that takes me, <laughs> yeah, that takes me a lot longer too. But it's, but it's, uh, it's like starting with, uh, starting with being irritated and uh, angry is kind of a fun place to start, I think. Right. And, and uh, of course, um, when you're irritated and anger and angry, um, that might be the funniest thing. I mean, if you're really serious, you know, and um, eh, you know, we can all be serious, but can we be humorous? Can we be funny? Can we say things that resonate real deep inside a reader or a listener, um, but also communicate um, uh, passion of one sort or another? And and what and. Um... I was I was talking with uh, one of my students the other day who's working on her memoir, and she was so concerned about the facts. She's on her first draft. She's so concerned about getting the facts right. And I and I, and I was like, it's not at the facts. What what it is is the emotion. You have to get the spirit right. And so you may your the facts may be a little. They may move around a little bit, but the most important thing is to stay true to the spirit of the scene that happened, you know, in your life, fifteen years ago or whatever. Oh, was I wrong? Was I wrong? No, you were not wrong. You <laughs> okay. were absolutely right. But I, 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 no, 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 you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, once we start telling a story, we need to finish. We need to elong, elongate, develop, and finish the story. And I always tell my students that, and, and sometimes my students will often, and I have done this so often, will stop and do exactly what you say. Uh, I want to make sure this is true. I want to go back and make sure, was it sunny on that day in May three years ago or whatever? I say, give yourself permission to lie. Give yourself permission to lie. Make up whatever you need to make up so that you can fill in the blanks and not lose your momentum and take that story in all of its different uh, param um, um, uh, permutations until it ends. And then go back and fact check yourself. But don't screw up your damn story, for God's sake. And also there's something about... Um when we're writing from our gut and something comes out and you know, maybe we do, maybe the weather is not factual for whatever scene that we are, that we were working on, but it's probably something even deeper in there 
where the, you know, maybe I'm getting too crazy here, but where the weather needs to be that to, to set this, to set the essence of what really happened in a better way. I don't know. I just feel like our gut tells our, our gut is going, you got this. I'm down here. And then sometimes we fact check and push the gut back down. So are you telling me, Tony, that, I mean, I, I, um, I wrote this other book uh, about this creative nonfiction yeah. genre and it's called, you can't make this stuff up. Am I allowed yeah. to swear on this show? Um, Oh, actually, no, because we're going to be on uh, we're going to be on KPCR 101.19 FM Santa Cruz. <laughs> All right. OK, well, I'm sure those people in Santa Cruz never swear. Exactly. But, uh, no. OK, so. All right. It's called uh, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. Um, and you can't really make this stuff up. So if it's if you remember it to be a wintry day, and you remember that that person uh, was wearing uh, a t-shirt out in the cold, um, you can't give them a, a fur jacket because that's making stuff up. I guess you can say, I wish he was wearing a fur jacket, or uh, I imagine when I saw him that he was wearing a fur jacket, but you can't make that stuff up because then your reader is not going to be, is not going to trust you and empathize with you. And so, um, and so there's that line. Um, I think that you can, let's use the word compose a scene. And I think you can kind of move stuff around in the scene, almost like you, you're a, you're a screenwriter. You know that, um, that the camera sees things a little bit differently and one can manipulate the camera so that it shows. And I think that we writers can do that as well and, and should do that to make it more compelling and interesting. But I'm not sure we should just put in stuff without telling the reader uh, what, we're, what we're putting in. I didn't use that in my book. Um, uh, all, am I saying this right? I'm not, yeah, all the names are real. And, um, and um, I'm bracing myself for the, for the pushback I'm gonna get, I have to tell you that. Uh, uh, but all the names are real. And everything that, all the stories I tell are as clear in my memory as they could be, even though they could way off, be way off base. But I want my reader to trust me. I want them to see that um, I that that yes, I thought I was I, I was ho I'm hoping that I'm glad you said that I was funny and that you laughed. But I poured my heart out. Um, 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 my 70th year, I was scared to death about the people dying and the fact that um, that I would not have much of a support system anymore. I mean, you may think I'm a friendly guy. Here we are talking and chatting. But I spent a long time, every day of my life, I'm six, eight hours in front of my keyboard. So who do I talk to? I don't answer the phone. I don't answer the door. I don't do anything but look at my keyboard and shrink myself out or, or, or write something else. So um, uh, I was known as a rather, and then when I walked out, um, I looked terrible. I was intense. I wasn't smiling. Um, um, and... And I did not much have a support system, and then I started losing all these folks, and um, and I was and, and I was quite upset. I was afraid that I wouldn't have a support system, and I was afraid that I was kind of, oh, let us say, losing it, or that I would, at seventy years old, perhaps lose, um, perhaps lose my ability to continue to function the way I wanted to function. Yeah, and it's. So you, 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 have, you have so much writing experience and it, this took you 10 years to write. And I think that's, I think that's important that people, because it, it reads breezy and whenever anything reads breezy, it usually means it takes a lot of work to get there. Um, and I, and I, that's I, true. Yes. I used to think like, oh my God, I could write because this person yeah. writes just like, uh, you know, this looks easy. And when it looks easy, yeah. that's the worst. I mean, that's the hardest. Yeah, this 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 doctor once asked me if I would um, if uh, he wrote this really serious um, uh, biography, um, and um, it was quite serious and and it, it, it was so dense it would take a steam shovel to kind of put your way through it. And he said, if you took a couple of days, do you think you could uh, add some color? And <laughs> so, so, so. He, he offered me a lot of money, but it wasn't worth the money because because <laughs> I'd have to make up the colors and it would take two years. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Or you or you could just get a nice 
blue color of something and throw it on the manuscript. <laughs> right, you could paint it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> There's your color. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Where's my 20 grand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he offered me more. But oh, wow. No, yeah. <laughs> What, what, what's it what's it like um as a writer and also uh teaching and teaching writing how, how how do those two fit for you well um well you know these days um as as you well know as well as me um writers don't make any money and um, so, <laughs> neither, um, neither do podcasters like me <laughs> okay so you and you know exactly what i'm talking about we we have to do we have can you still hear me Okay, we have to do, there's something wrong with my, with, with the shape of my ears, and um, nothing sticks in them, and I have to keep pushing them. You know, I used to have those, what do you call those, apple drops? Right, things. yeah. Yeah, they kept falling out no matter what I did. Those things freak me out, because I, I could never buy one, because I would feel like they would fall out. Yeah, and maybe they wouldn't, because you're, uh, I can only see half of your ear, but you have a nice looking ear there. Yeah. Um, look, oh, those things you're wearing now, they don't even fit in my ear. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I feel better about myself. Thank you. <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't know anything more about you, but I can tell you, your ears are solid. <laughs> oh, I like that ear. <laughs> Where were we? I have no idea. <laughs> I told you. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I understand my ears throw people off a lot because when I walk yeah. down the street, right. you know, I'm wearing my mask and everything, but like girls kind of turn around and look at my ear. <laughs> and I'm just, and I'm like, hot look at ear. They say hot ear. Yeah, exactly. Hot ear. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I got to cover them when I don't want to be bugged at the grocery store and ask for my phone number. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, what really annoys me. I'm sorry, we're way off place. But what fine. really annoys me about the masks. Is okay. I have a mask, and it took me a while to get a mask that will fit around my neck and won't go around my ear because you look like your ears when you put the mask on with those hooks around you. They your ears protrude. You look like a bunny, and yeah. it annoys me to death. I mean, I mean, I'm you know, um, I'm not as handsome now. I'm pretty handsome, but I'm not as handsome as I used to be. And, from your and point of Joe, view, from my vantage point, you're very good looking. But go ahead. I'm, I'm moved. Uh, <laughs> so, we, we may never stop talking now that I have uh, isolated your hot ear and you think I'm good looking. So it's... Uh, it all started here, folks. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Where were we? <laughs> well, we were, we were talking about ears protruding. See, because with the mask, which I got a big head. So I like I saw I, that. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's kind of big. Yeah, when, it is. when I go to the hat store, I go, where is the down syndrome section because <laughs> it's really that big. And it's like even the even a size 8 baseball cap, I can't get on my head. It looks like a yarmulke. I need like I I can't I, I love baseball and I can't wear a baseball hat. So that's when I ridiculous. Yeah, so when I wear a mask, it's like it's strangling my whole face. I got to get something that's more adjustable. Because what it, I think I'm the missing link. I think I'm closer to the ape than many people uh, have been. I don't know. I don't know where to go with that. Yeah, I, I'm glad I, I I'm glad I stopped you dead because that's what I love to do. <laughs> the um, when you you wrote a book about craft. What, what were you, did you like? Were you teaching for years and then took like? Oh, from you're asking about teaching. That's right. Remember? Yeah. That, oh yeah. my God! You brought us back. You're the one. Told <laughs> you. Give me a little time. Yes. It all comes back. Um, so, I don't know what the question was related to teaching, but yes, I have been teaching this genre of creative nonfiction um, since the early 1970s when they were then calling it the new journalism. The phrase creative, non creative nonfiction is now the fastest growing genre in the publishing industry and, as you, and in the academy. And, um, and I mean, I said there's narrative psychiatry, but there's, a, a, there's narrative medicine, narrative genetics, narrative history. Uh, one could go on and on about how academics are now uh, using narrative to communicate ideas and information to a general public, and academics, um, academics are well. They're very smart and very interesting, but they have, for a long time, 
uh, tried to avoid talking with uh, the world at large. They just talk to one another. They publish papers and um, in journals, and 200 people read it when they should be when their work should be shared with 200,000 people. So, so that's all happening. And the reason this this creative nonfiction genre. Um, so in 19 in the early 1970s, um, I became the first person to teach creative nonfiction on a full time level. Um, at the University of Pittsburgh, anywhere, and eventually started the first MFA program in the creative writing program, um, also uh, offering uh, with a creative nonfiction degree. And but gradually, it has just kind of carried over into all kinds of different areas in the academy. And um, and I mention this because now. Um, I'm in my 12th year at Arizona State University, and I'm the writer in residence at a, in a science policy think tank. And um, I'm helping these guys who, um, who, again, only speak to the choir. I'm helping them um, um, uh, uh, connect with a much larger world, not just those folks, but we have international programs that, uh, again, I teach creative nonfiction technique to people who know a lot of stuff but don't know how to share it with the world. And the, and the work scientists and economists and policy people are doing, um, the work they're doing and the thinking they're doing will affect the entire world. And unless we under, now it's so important with the Internet that we all understand what's going on in this world. And so, so that's what I do. I started teaching undergrads, then grads, and um, and and now I'm I'm I'm, I'm teaching. Um, I miss the undergrads sometimes, but I'm teaching um, uh, um, colleagues. I'm teaching lots of um, physicians, engineers, uh, attorneys to uh, to learn how to use story to connect with the world. And you know, um, when you get information in a story, you will remember it longer and be more persuaded than if a person just, if a journalist gives you the five, w, five W's of facts. So that's a long answer, but that's what I'm doing. And we were taught, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but, um, but we we're talking about how writers don't make any money. And the way they have to make money these days so often uh, and, and get health care and get a pension um, um, in, in, is to join creative writing programs and teach their skills to those folks, to undergrads and grads and those folks um, that I mentioned to you. Because um, supporting yourself by writing books is an absolutely ridiculous notion. It's so funny because, you know, Way back in the day, I thought if you had a book out, you were at your mansion counting all your money. It's just like, oh, my God, they have a book. That person's probably living on a boat somewhere just, you know, sailing the seas. You really thought that? Did you really think that? I did, yeah, when I was young, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. Uh, the, um, I, I, what you're doing is really cool because it's, uh, it's almost like you're – it sounds like it's almost like a translating gig. It's like a get because you're taking their language and how and how the academics talk to each other and making it uh, so giving it a, a, a voice for people who aren't exactly in that. Well, I'm not doing it. I'm teaching them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> or and, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And besides which, um, in the, the big challenge is, well, they're smart. And learning writing craft is not that difficult. But getting scientists um, who have hidden themselves in the lab for a long period of time to want to put the work in, to agree to put the work in, to learn how to write, that's a big challenge. It's like that doctor I told you about. Yeah, here's take a couple of days, put in some color. Um, but, you know, you have to take, a, you, you know, you teach writing and you have to take a long time to focus on how to do it well and right. And so, so that's a double challenge, teaching them to do it and then getting them to want to do it. And do they not realize how much time and learning it takes to actually really get to become a, a good storyteller? 
Yes, they do not realize. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, it's like some, I teach screenwriting these days, and I get, um, I get actors coming into the class going, oh, I want to write my own material. And by the end of the quarter, they're usually like, oh, my God, there's no way I can do this. <laughs> Writing is so hard. And I, and I feel like I've done my job at that point. I'm like, yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> right, right. Come back, work for two years, and come back to see me, and I'll help you some more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a... Uh, it's just, it's it's every it's funny because everything is just feels like like especially when I'm trying to look go after my dreams you know the dreams I thought I had as a kid and then your dreams come true and it's usually a thousand times more work and a hundred thousand times less praise and less money oh, yeah, you yeah. know <laughs> yeah you're talking about a boat um, um, if you publish a book I'll take uh, a nice word or two. And, um, and, and, you know, like, like somebody might notice, I mean, here I am with you, you are noticing my book. Um, and, and that's really so special. Um, because, you know, um, even though you've, you know, you've written the book, um, people know you've written the book. Will they pay $30 to buy it? No way. It's, I mean, $30, they'll go out and spend uh, $30 on two martinis but um, not a piece of literature. And so, um, but in this case, Tony, in this case, I know that there are thousands of people listening to us right now. And I know that as soon as this interview is over, maybe even before it's over, they are going to be rushing to my website and buying not only my book, one copy, but Christmas is coming up. Thanksgiving is coming up. Birthdays are coming up. Um, my last 8,000 days is going to be a best seller. I know because you are noticing. And when I look at the bestseller list, I'll tell everyone that was me. Uh, that was yes, me. Yes. That's why that's there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll take so much responsibility. <laughs> it only took you 10 years. It took me an hour. No. <laughs> well, I'm going to make a, another commitment here yeah. that after I sell my 500 thousandth copy of my last 8,000 days, I'm going to start giving you a percentage because, um, because this is, this is the beginning of fame and that boat for me right now. I know it. Uh, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking winter quarter, 2021, I'm going to be start raking in some money from you. Oh, you're going to, you're going to have your boat. Uh, I'll have my boat. This is going to be great. We're a partner. <laughs> so. Wait, wait, in the 1970s, when you, when you start, working on something that's new like this. Yeah. Did you get pushback? Where did you, was it like, why, why are you writing yourself into this? Oh my God. Pushback is, 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 <laughs> is, 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 you know, a, a something that doesn't even describe the, um, the animosity that has started on two levels. One, um, this new journalism, uh, remember it wasn't at that time creative nonfiction. It was new journalism. Um, those new journalists broke many rules and um, those traditional journalists really hated it. They have been doing this traditional stuff every day of their lives. And suddenly uh, a bunch of guys, mostly guys, a bunch of guys come and start telling stories and, and using the I word, the first person word and, and talking about how, what they see and how they feel and it just violated so many principles of journalism. It made people so angry. And um, the same thing that ha happened in the academy. Um, but the academy, I guess, uh, I guess turf is an issue both in the journalism world and the academy. But writers in, in the early 1970s, as far as I know, there were no more than two or three creative writing programs in the country. Um, and, and now, Suddenly, first of all, writers started entering into the academy and into English departments. And English departments are underfunded as they are, and they all, as they always have been. And now, with writers taking up some space and tenure slots and students, um, uh, the literature folks um, got quite paranoid. And then, when new journalism, or creative nonfiction was introduced, then it got really in a, a big controversy and struggle. Poetry is art and creative, and we could count that as, as 
as a literature. Fiction is art, and we can count that as literature. But is journalism art? Is nonfiction art? It's, it's um, why, if it's such an art, why are we describing it as a non, as a nothing, as a not? And, and so the pushback was tremendous, and it lasted a long, long time. Um, but um, every year, more and more students got interested in telling their stories, and more and more scientists decided, um, well, maybe I should share my work. Um, not only will I become more famous, but I'll make some money. So gradually, um, what I described to you 10 minutes ago about being the fastest genre in the academy and in um, publishing, it took 40 years to make that happen. And, and, when, and when you would, I've, I wasn't, like with your, first, with your first piece and when you're pitching it, did you have, like even with editors, where they were like, we can't take this. This is not going to work. What do you think you're doing? How, how did you enter the, um, with your early stories, getting them? Well, uh, magazine editors were much more open to this than newspaper editors. Okay. And so there were, I mean, there were some great write, narrative writing um, nonfiction writing down through history at the New Yorker, at Esquire, at New York Magazine, um, at the Atlantic. Um, Rachel Carson's first essay, first dramatic essay, uh, was published in, um, in the Atlantic in the 1930s. And, and I mean, if you really want to go back in time, um, Daniel Defoe, um, Robinson Crusoe, which is mostly fiction, but still he called it non, it was called nonfiction. Um, um, that's 300 years ago. And so it was being done, but um, no one really thought that it was really part of literature. And the journalists, uh, the traditional journalists, really, they had their rules, you know, like the inverted pyramid, and you never use the word I unless it refers to somebody else. And, and you must be, this is so stupid, but you must be objective. Who can be objective? So, um, so <laughs> you know, so yeah, there was a great deal of pushback. And, and, um, and, um, and that's how I got my um, name or my label, um, um, my, my 15 minutes of fame, because um, the cultural critic, James Wolcott, um, in Vanity Fair magazine, um, in late in the late 1990s, ripped the hell out of the genre of creative nonfiction, and said that I was the lead the leader of this terrible, uh, disgusting pack of writers, and called me the godfather behind creative nonfiction. And um, and for about a day or two, um, I was I was humiliated and embarrassed. Um, by getting roasted so much in Vanity Fair magazine. But then as I walked the streets, I mean, at that time, a million point one people were reading or getting Vanity Fair magazine. And I had this creative nonfiction journal and 3,000 people were getting that. And I started walking the streets and I was really embarrassed. But people who saw me and recognized me were congratulating me for being profiled. It didn't matter if I was roasted or not. It didn't matter what Walcott said. What mattered was I was the godfather now. And, um, and so that kind of began to change things in, the, in, the, um, in this narrative nonfiction world. Um, Vanity Fair started making fun of it, and and but every but everybody knew it. I mean, they had never heard of creative nonfiction, um, but suddenly <laughs> anyone who read Vanity Fair knew it, and so that's what they remembered, and not the fact that uh, that Walcott thought I was a jerk. So, so you got donned a Godfather, yep. but but it was through insults. But it turned out everyone just saw Godfather. Exactly. Congratulations. This is really great. <laughs> there was a guy in, uh, um, I had to go to a faculty meeting right a day, right after um, getting roasted by Vanity Fair. And, uh, and uh, I'm at the University of Pittsburgh and there's this big building called the Cathedral of Learning. And I get on the elevator to go up to the fifth floor English department. And, and, <clears throat> and I felt really uncomfortable because I thought my colleagues were going to 
laugh at me or criticize me, which they have been doing for the past 12 years anyway. And the, door, the elevator doors opened, and there was this guy. His name was Bruce Dobler. And um, he stood there, and he looked at me for a second, and he started to smile. And suddenly, we just stopped there. And suddenly, he grabbed my hand, fell to his knees, and said, I kiss your hand, Godfather. And uh, I thought, okay, this is my window of opportunity, and um, I'm going to take advantage of it. That's your boat. What's my boat? That. Getting oh, that was my boat. You're right. That was, that was my your boat. boat. Yeah, but I'm not rich yet. I mean, yeah, it did get me a few gigs, but um, but and and um, and it gets me on shows like yours because then um, they may or may not care. People may or may not care about my last eight thousand days. But if I'm the Godfather by Vanity Fair, then um, then I, I have some uh, credence. Do you, Do you still have a copy of that um, article? Did you? How many thousand would you like? <laughs> <laughs> of course I do. Good, good, yeah. yeah. How, did, how did you find out you were in Vanity Fair? Did someone tell you or did you happen upon it? I'm lying in bed. It's midnight. If you, I know you read my book, so you know that um, probably my, 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 my biggest downfall and, and sin in life is my absolute obsession with Law & Order reruns. And, uh, and so I'm lying in bed, it's almost midnight, and, um, and I'm watching my fifth Law & Order, I'm exaggerating, my, my second Law & Order, and trying to get myself to sleep. And I get a phone call from my ex-wife, who got a phone call from um, our babysitter, uh, who was standing in line in a grocery store, you know, I have all those magazines on display, and she flipped through Vanity Fair and saw me. And I told you, I wasn't particularly friendly fellow. So she was afraid to call me and tell me. So she called my ex-wife and that's how I learned uh, that I was suddenly the godfather. Did you, and then did you run out and buy a copy? Were there any, were there, was there any place to grab a copy then or did you have to wait till the morning? Um, I waited till the morning. I just, I mean, I was watching Law and Order. How can you leave Law and Order? So, um, <laughs> I, you know, years ago I did some stand-up comedy, and I and I got a and I got a. Um, they put a photo of me in a little thing in the the weekly in uh, San Francisco. You know, the weekly magazine. So yeah. I had a quarter-page photo of me doing stand-up. I walked up and down all over San Francisco, and I said, "Have you seen the latest issue of this weekly magazine?" And people looked at me like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Do you know who this guy is?" And I'd open I'd open a page sixty three or whatever it was, and they'd be like, "Oh my god, that's you!" And I'm like, "I know." <laughs> that's how I walked around for like three days. <laughs> that's a riot. Um, and and did you get more gigs after that? No, that was the best day of my life. Everything's oh, okay. been downhill from there. I see. Yeah, I see. That was my one moment of glory. All right. <laughs> no, there, then, and when my uh, when my uh, novel came out, they did a profile on me in the San Francisco Chronicle, and my face, was, yeah, my face was the front the front uh, page of the entertainment section. So then, after you know, I'm walking around town, going, "All right, who's going to notice me now?" One person, uh, and it was at the post office. It was a postal worker, and he says, "Are you a writer?" And I went, "Yes." <laughs> he says. I, were you in the newspaper? Today? I'm like, yes. <laughs> he was the only one. I'm like, I'm oh. on the front page of the entertainment section. Where are these people? You know, because at that point, I thought they'd all come to me. They never do. Right, yeah. right. They never will, Tony. No, you're gonna have to go to them. I, Which you get, yeah, yeah. Right. It's a beautiful lesson to learn. <coughs> it's a beautiful lesson to learn that people usually don't care. Or if they care, they're not going to give you the satisfaction of knowing. Right. And that's, the, you know, what's, we were talking about this earlier. I love it when, someone, when someone's like maybe in, like we're in town and they're like, oh, my God, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a huge fan of your book. Can I buy you a drink? The answer is yes. Right. Please. I don't think – and they're doing me more of a favor than I'm doing for them. It's a, it, those are the happiest moments of my life. Oh no! This is this is. I mean, this is why we write. Honest to God, that um, um, at least that that we're not writing for money and we're not writing for fame. None of that. But we're writing in order to make a difference in other people's lives. 
and and that's I mean that's um, be, uh, through through whatever we make up or through our own experiences. I mean that's that's the whole reason that a serious writer writes. I think to um, to, to share what they know and to change or uh, uh, to change the perspective of readers or at least get them to start thinking about other ways and other ideas. And so when you get um, when you get I don't care if I'm noticed on the street and I don't care whether um, they have seen me in Vanity Fair, but I would love it and I do love it when people say, I read your book and it really meant something to me and I shared it with my dad or whatever and um, and he began looking at his life a little differently. That's why we do it. That is why we do it. And even if it only happens 20 times through the life of a book, those are 20 people that you have... Uh, made a difference in for and um, made an impact. And, it, and the impact feels so important because I'm, you know, I, I'm a fan and I, I tr I'm trying to read every single day because I know it enriches my life. If, if I'm reading 50 pages a day, that's essentially my meditation and feeling yep. better about myself because I get to really dive into the world of, um, of just, of, of something else and, and re and I, uh, you know, it's uh we have so much being thrown at us with internet, with social media, but there's just something about having that book in your hand and reading it and getting lost in the pages, even forgetting how long you've been reading. And it, you take so much more out of it. I don't know why it feels like such a meteor relationship between, um, between writer and reader. I think it's probably the meatiest relationship we can have. I'm, I'm so um, with you in agreement. And, and I, um, I bought a Kindle. And I can't quite, I want to touch that book. And I can't quite get the Kindle. I, I have it, but I don't touch it. And, and, and also, um, younger people today are not into reading like we used to be. And I don't want to sound like an old codger, but, um, but um, books meant a lot more to the world than they do today. And it's... And it's a commitment. Maybe people just don't want to commit to anything anymore. Ah, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. You know, let's start yeah. a six-hour relationship or let's start a, a six-second clickbait uh, scroll down. What really kills me, what kills me so much is that when you, even when you go on to websites of really good magazines, they tell you in the end how long it's going to take you to read it. That is so annoying. I, I just want to read it. <laughs> And yeah. if it takes me an hour, okay. And if I want to stop in the middle, okay. But they're telling me in advance that it'll only make, take me 22 minutes to read it? Come on. And I have such a hard time with, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I, I don't want to be a curmudgeon. And I've tried to read things on devices, and it's just not the same. There, there's not the same, and I don't know why. You can't like, underline. I, that is the true, yes. Um, 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 yeah. The, I, I mean, like, you can, but you have to go through such machinations is not worth it i want to take here's my pen i want to write down on this page i think that's why i also write all my first drafts handwrite oh because do you? yeah because i want um i want the tactical but i also want to know that it's only going to cost me about three bucks to write a book <laughs> I, I don't need to have a huge machine to write anything ah, I, see. I see i i could do this like that so and then the set, you know, and then it's a terrible way to go because then you got to transcribe it into the computer. Oh my God! You know, it's I, I'm not talking. You know, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not making any speed. Uh, speed choice champion choices there. Right. Right. For some well, reason, um, Hemingway didn't have a computer. He did okay in his life, and uh, Fitzgerald, and um, some of them had typewriters, but yeah. some didn't. Yeah, there's uh, there's just something about the machine. I like to just remember that we don't need machines. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Although I miss the this, I miss the typewriter. I miss the sound of it hitting. I mean, you can kind of hear the keyboard on a Apple, but it's not like clack, 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 the clacks. Just measure. Um, what your your progress and and, uh -huh. and and when and and you can really clack down hard if you get annoyed or angry at what you've done. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I miss all that. And when you clack down hard, 
the ink presses harder on the paper. So you know when you're reading those pages when you were angry and when and, and and then and then the the beauty of the um the ink just evenly coming on the paper. You're like, oh, I was um, I was in a joyous place. I must yes, have been right yes, there for. Yeah. When you when you said typewriters, I was just thinking of the old days of a newsroom of typewriters clacking and people yeah, smoking yeah. cigarettes. or just smoke in the air and clacking. I would I would that that should be a museum exhibit. If if I I would just go to a place where I just saw a bunch of people smoking and and clacking on typewriters. I'd pay a lot of money to see that. I think. Probably no. I mean, the smoking thing, you can get the clacking thing, but no one's, no, the, the, most of the people who smoke now hide away. So, um, I mean, they're hidden. There are all kinds of millions of hidden smokers, you know, who's yeah, buying yeah. these cigarettes. There are lots of people buying the cigarettes and then they sneak around and, and, and smoke. Um, so, so, um, that's something else you can do to make money. I mean, get smoke. 30, Get thirty people to smoke in public. Oh yeah, and then and then you could you could call me up. I'd like to come in and breathe in some of that smoke because I don't do it anymore. But I love the breathing in of this. I a secondhand smoke. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Like uh, I remember the smoking sections on airplanes. Oh yeah, it was it was just so normal. And um, and but and then now as I'm older, I'm like, oh, that makes sense because then you can divide your time up by how much smoking you're going to do. How many, how many <laughs> cigarettes is my uh, East Coast trip going to take? Right. You right. know, it's, uh, but, but, now, but now, we have, now we have video screens that help us. That's our new, that's our new dopamine kick. We can, right. uh, we can watch Judge Judy on an airplane. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> – <laughs> I don't even want to go there. Who wants to watch Judge Judy? You know what? I, I, the weird – when I'm on an airplane – I go for the weirdest things. I, I would never stuff I would never watch in real life, but if I'll watch something like Judge Judy or just the terrible courtroom dramas, it takes me out of realizing that I'm hurling through space on a piece of metal. What about books? That's that's where I love reading on an airplane. I, I'm still too nervous of a flyer to to get. I no, can't read kidding. a book. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm I'll give it more of a try. I bring books with me. There's always like two or three books with me, yeah. but they only make it from the um, the terminals. They 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 don't crack out when I'm on a plane. So, of course, you're, you're talking now history. People once were flying on airplanes, um, but right now, <laughs> <laughs> remember airplanes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is it was fun. So nice to meet you and talk with you. Lee Goodkin on Drinks with Tony. Check out his latest memoir, My Last 8,000 Days, or dive into even deeper into his back catalog of, of over 30 books. I love interviewing authors, and then there's authors like Lee who inspire me to remember the joys of creativity, the life journey of being a creative person. Next week on the show, we have Joseph De Prisco. Speaking of inspiring fellas, Joseph published his first book when he was 24 years old. Total hotshot author out the gate, publishing before 25. Then, he didn't publish his second book until almost 30 years later. How does the hell, how in the hell does that happen, Tony? Well, find out by listening to my conversation with Joseph DePrisco next week on Drinks with Tony. Stay safe. Don't eat apples with razor blades. Happy Halloween. Happy election hell. I'll see you when this life gets even a little weirder next Wednesday. Have a great weekend.